You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Today I'm broadcasting from a 14th century monastery in Avignon, France. So we have a bit of a spiritual vibe, which is perfect for our guest today. Uh, well, I'm delighted <clears throat> to have our guest, Marianne Williamson, uh, join us on the show today. I first saw Marianne do a, an event at a church in Santa Monica uh, regarding the Course in Miracles when uh, Marianne was eight months pregnant with her daughter. And I think that must have been 31, 32 years ago. And yeah, you were radiating there. an angelic uh, energy that evening. <clears throat> pregnant yeah. women do. And uh, then uh, fast, <laughs> fast forward 20 years later, and I saw you a number of times at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills doing your weekly workshop there on the Course in Miracles, probably over 10 times in like 2011, 2012, which were always very powerful. And uh, one evening you came up to me and said, uh, do I know you? And I said, well, maybe 20 years ago we met at your other events, but uh, it's been a while. And then we both ran for president in 2020. Uh, you as a Democrat, me as a Republican. And I remember being interviewed for by a radio guy in New Hampshire, and he said, you know, you sound like the Republican Marianne Williamson. And, uh, because I was talking about- You should have teamed up, you and me. Yeah, we should have. I, I should have <laughs> called you. Um, well, it's, it's never too late. So, uh, you know, I was talking about health care and incentivizing good health and things like that. And uh, of course, I took it as a nice compliment. And so it's been about a 31-year arc of storyline to set up this conversation, but eventually it did happen. So uh, there's so much to talk about, and you've spoken and written on so many important topics, it's challenging to ask you kind of where to start. My inclination is to have you talk about um, how you realized you were a powerful person and how you were going to use that power for good in the world. Uh, so with that long-winded intro, welcome, Marianne. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I love hearing that story, uh, knowing that we've known each other for a long time and I didn't even know it. So that's great. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I was kind of uh, hearkening back to what uh, you had written in, I think, one of your books about recognizing people's spiritual power and that one of the things that many of us do or all of us do is kind of shirk from that a bit and kind of live a bit smaller because we don't want to kind of take on that challenge of growing to the next level and to use that power that we have been given for for good. And I, I kind of like you to talk about that because I think you've talked about that really powerfully and I'd love to have the audience hear that message because as far as I'm concerned, we can't kind of hear it enough. Well, I think that you're right. I think playing small is a kind of perverse comfort zone. It's the default we go into. Having been told that we're limited, having been told we're not good enough in various ways, by the society, by parental figures, whomever, having been told we're not as good as, having been told whatever illusions that we've been taught, we internalize those things and keep ourselves playing within a very narrow field. It becomes our default, becomes our mental habit. 
if we are to say, I don't want to live within that narrow, those narrow parameters, I think that I have, because of a God who lives with me, unlimited capacity and potential to become strong where I've been weak, to become loving where I've been harsh, to become forgiving where I've been judgmental, to start soaring above all these small-minded neuroses and wounded wounded places and sense of victimization. I want to I want to go for freedom. That is a big challenge to the ego. First of all, we get a lot of resistance from our own programming that we've internalized. And in many ways, we get a lot of resistance from the society. You know, if you if you say I'm wounded and I victimize, a thousand people will join you in the support group. If you say I'm wounded like everyone else, but I choose not to live from the wound, I claim my power. You're going to have a lot of people gathered to tell you who the hell do you think you are? So to truly stand on the idea that we live at a time where the grown-ups better show up now, because that's really what we're talking about. We've had a, the post, longest post-adolescence in the history of the world in our society. We have too many men running around like little boys and too many women running around like little girls. And one of the things that we all know is that this is a very serious moment. And we better rise up and we better show up and we better grow up. And that, I think, is the zeitgeist of this moment. Uh, um, inhabiting the space and expanding to the openness and the willingness for a level of maturity and emotional, psychological sobriety and real social and intellectual and emotional adulthood that is required at this time for enough of us to come together and turn things around in a society that has become very fraught with very deep challenges. Well, I'd say an amen to that. Um, I guess the the question is, how does that occur on an individual basis and collectively, how do we turn things around? Well, it has to begin on an individual basis. Now, you can talk about it in secular terms. You can talk about character. You can talk about integrity. You can talk about it in spiritual and religious terms, about forgiveness and generosity and mercy. But whether we're seeing those things in secular or religious or spiritual terms, it has to do with our realizing that something has gone wrong at the center of things. The way people treat each other in this society, the way we have made somebody making a quick buck or a huge multinational corporation making a quick buck, more important in way too many cases than just people treating people. We all get that. I think that very few people um, are not recognizing something has gone wrong. We're off the rails in this society. But I think that we also realize, those who are taking a sober look at all this, that the change has to begin with me. Now, because I come from a religious and spiritual faith position, to me, that change is very difficult to come by without a serious relationship with a higher power, prayer, meditation, and so forth. But I know many wonderful people, certainly playing the, li- the game of life at full wingspan, who, who don't contextualize it from a religious or spiritual perspective. But they, they know that what matters is their character, their honesty, their integrity. Um, so however we name it, it's the idea of personal improvement that goes way beyond uh, getting what you want into the field of being the people that, that we should be on this planet. We know that we are not, we we were not, whether you see it as we were not created by God or we're, you don't see it as being created by God. 
for those of us who do see it as created by God, we were created to love one another, not to hate one another, to be peacemakers. I don't believe we were created to destroy the earth. We were not created to just put so many chemicals in the water that people get cancer at high rates. We were not created to put so many toxins in the, in the food that the chemicals are, are destroying our health. We were not created to make guns more important than kindness. We were not created to withhold from each other on the levels that we are. And I think everybody knows this. That, that's the good news. The good news is I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know at this point. Now the issue is for all of us, I think, to begin by looking in the mirror and asking how we can be the men and women that we need to be to play the biggest part in contributing to the collective, like you said, where do you start with the collective or the personal? You start with the personal, but you know that there is collective emergence going on here. That if you feel what I just said, don't forget, so do millions of other people as well. And if we all stand up as best we can, we will find ourselves, we will find ourselves meeting with people in circumstances, relationships, situations where all of us have a greater opportunity to show up for the good. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your spiritual journey, where it started, and what were some of the spiritual <laughs> awakenings you had. In particular, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Project Angel Food and how that story uh, was part of your journey as well. Well, first of all, I think everybody's on a spiritual path. Most people just don't know it. Being on a spiritual path, spirituality is just the path of the heart. Everybody is learning, either through wisdom or through pain, to become a better person, because life's going to nudge you there one way or the other. I, I don't subscribe to the Eureka theory of spiritual transformation. To me, we're all just doing our best. And, and life is nudging us in the direction of being better today than we were yesterday. That, to me, is the spiritual journey. I stay away from any grandiosity about it. Like, ah, I didn't see, and now I do see. You know, it's more like I, did, I saw last night, and I didn't see this morning, right? It's more like I see now, but I don't know how it'll be tonight. So, you know, let's all keep it grounded and keep it humble. And that's what the spiritual journey is. It's just a life of maturation. Now, for me, in terms of Project Angel Food, I was giving lectures on A Course in Miracles in Los Angeles, as you know. When I started, I started lecturing in 1983. By the mid-80s, AIDS was exploding onto the scene. And you couldn't be in Los Angeles and not feel the impact of that disease and its ravages. And it took a while. It wasn't like Western medicine wasn't trying. It was certainly trying, but it was like with COVID, there is no cure yet. They're rushing, there's an urgency, they haven't found a cure yet. That's how it was with AIDS, as I'm sure you remember. But it wasn't just that the medical um, authorities kept trying and coming up empty uh, on cure and treatment. Another uh, challenge was the quietude of the organized religious institutions. I assume because they were working through their own issues of ambivalence about gay people or whatever. Marianne, let me just stop you uh, for a second there, do our station break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Marianne Williamson on Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. We'll be right back in one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with uh, Matt Matter, your host, and 
my guest again, Marianne Williamson, and we're talking about uh, Marianne's work with Project Angel Food. And if you could just uh, jump back into where you were in, in telling that story about how that evolved. Well, I was just saying that I was giving lectures on A Course in Miracles, and there was a lot of desperation in the air. And a lot of gay men started coming to my lectures in L.A. at that time because I was talking about a God who loves you no matter what and miracles that can happen. And so gay men in L.A. really gave me my career. And I was lecturing several times a week, and there was great suffering that was occurring. So I began doing these support groups, and then we thought, you know, this week we're at John's, and on Thursday we're at Aiden's, and Monday we're going to be at David's. And then we thought, well, let's rent a house that could be a place where people could come, you know, they can't work any longer. Um, We would rent a house and they could, we would make food there and they could have support groups and they could watch movies and they could have therapists come and massage, all kinds of non-medical support services, free support services to people who are dealing not only with AIDS, but other life-challenging illnesses. And then one day I walked in um, to the house and I said, where's John? And they said, well, John didn't come in today. I said, why didn't he come in? They said, well, he, he's too sick. He can't get, he couldn't get here. I said, well, how, how's he going to eat lunch? Because John would usually be here for lunch. And they said, well, oh no. I said, all right, we'll have to drive. Somebody needs to take him lunch. We'll take him lunch. And this just started happening more and more. And I realized how many more people would be at home and we, they could not come to the center anymore for those services. So we started doing fundraisers and we started Project Angel Food, which was a, a, a project of uh, the Center for Living, um, where the idea was that homebound people with AIDS would still feel our love. They would receive our food, but they would also receive our love. And people were, so many people at the lectures would say, I'm getting as, this is as much a service to me. You know, people felt... As, as people do now with COVID, although the differences are interesting as well as the similarities, people were like, what can we do to be of help? And so I think people who were volunteering in the kitchen and people who were volunteering as drivers felt like this was a way that they could, in the midst of this horrifying situation, be of service to others, which made all the difference. It was born of a very beautiful spirit. And I'm so admiring and impressed and happy and satisfied and all those good things to see how generation upon generation of board membership and executive leadership has carried on the best of traditions of Project Angel Food, served over 13 million meals now. I feel like the grandmother who's brought down from the attic every once in a while, you know, uh, to talk about the beginnings of it, to talk to the board members. I'm very honored that they seem to have carved out a little space that, you know, the founder, they want to hear from the founder and they want to hear about that, that spirit out of which it was born and which they have so beautifully uh, year after year kept moving forward. Uh, It's a beautiful organization and I hope that it's something all Los Angeles can feel very proud of. Well, absolutely. And I I think it's just such a great story of of starting at such a small and modest beginning and then it's building out. I mean, there was no business plan. There was no, like I said, I said to David Kessler, I said, we need to do this. He said, what's your business plan? I said, what do you mean business plan? He said, well, what's your business plan? I don't know. We need to do it. We're going to make, we're going to make food and we're going to deliver it to people. What do you mean business plan? 
And right. some people might right. right now be saying it can't be as simple as that, but it actually was as simple as that. Right. I, I like that Goethe quote uh, that uh, boldness has genius, power, and magic. So I think that was a bold move and uh, obviously well, had genius, power, and magic. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with youth, doesn't it? You don't know what there is to be scared of yet. Well, it was it was kind of funny that I was talking to a friend about uh, interviewing you, and she was saying, oh, I, I uh, volunteered for that when I was in UCLA, and they one of my cool professors uh, brought us down there, and, you know, we got to do this, and how it was such a, a great experience for her. So the ring of effect that it had on so many people is something you can't even measure. It's, uh, it's one of those things that goes on and on and on. Sure, you're proud of it. And it's just a, it's such a great example of just throwing your hat over the wall and saying, hey, I'm going to go get it. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to go get it. But, you know, here I go. I, I didn't so. even know there was anything to go get. I just thought, oh, we're going to do this. It was real like, hey, Mickey. Hey, Judy. I, there was one conversation that I have not forgotten because I think it was very significant. I said to my mother, this was about founding the, the, the original Center for Living. I said to my mother, well, you know, I want to start this nonprofit organization, but I just don't know if I should. She said, well, what, what would the organization do? I said, well, you know, there are these people, mommy, that have AIDS and they're really sick and other people who are really sick. And I thought if we just had a place that they could come every day, you know, a lot of people would volunteer to do therapy with them and they could watch movies and we could have massages. And a lot of these people feel very unloved and we could make food. I just think it would be really good. And she said, well, that sounds wonderful. Why wouldn't you do it? I said, well, mommy, I mean, if I did that, I think that I could only do it in integrity if I assumed I would be here for at least five years. I mean, you can't start something like that and then just know I might leave next year. I mean, you'd have a real responsibility. You'd be raising money. You'd be doing this. So I would really owe it to people to stay for at least five years. And my mother's response has stayed with me. She said, I feel so sorry for your generation that you're so afraid of someone needing you. Wow. She said, you're old enough that you should show up for being needed by others. Powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so a message, I think, indicts all of us a bit and uh, something that we can all work on. It's just like you had said earlier that these spiritual awakenings are not always eureka moments. They're pieces of progress that we make along the path. Absolutely. The small epiphanies, the small, what they call in AA, moments of clarity, moments of forgiveness, moments of just showing up in a different way than you did yesterday and realizing that the new way really does work better. You know, life is a series of lessons and the lessons are rehearsed until we get them right. Let me ask you a bit about writing books because you've written a number <laughs> of books and, uh, it kind of relates to some of the things we've been talking about uh, in that uh, you're taking a powerful message and sharing it, not knowing how it will be received. And I assume there's some fears attached to it. Uh, are people going to like this? Uh, um, is it going to be accepted? Am I going to, is it going to fall flat? Um, so, or at least those would be some of the fears I'd have. I don't know if you had any of that, but tell us a little bit about, that journey and, and what it looked like? Well, when I wrote my first book, you know, 
the kind of commodification of the spiritual journey had not occurred in those days. So there was nothing to be ambitious for in my career. You know, now it's an industry. That, that wasn't, it wasn't like that. Then I had nothing to be ambitious for. And when I wrote my first book, I was just hoping it would sell enough copies that I wouldn't be embarrassed. I didn't know what it meant that Oprah Winfrey called. I didn't know. She didn't have a book club yet. I knew she had a successful show. I knew she was a nice lady. I knew it was really nice that she invited me to be on her show. But I didn't know. <laughs> you know she'd get up and say it was her favorite book and give a thousand copies away and it would be the fifth largest selling book that year and my life would never be the same. I didn't know that. And I think the fact that I didn't know it is what facilitated its happening. Um, she gave me my career in a day. I had a career as an author as of that day. But you write enough books and you're at a point where people, and especially since other people start writing books about the same kinds of things, it's not just this magic where you have, a, you know, you write a book and you're on Oprah and you are, become a bestseller. It's not like that. It's, you have to work a little, not that you work hard on writing the books because you work hard on all that. But it's, um, it's not a sure thing that you're going to get promoted. It's not a sure thing anybody is going to read it. That's not a sure thing that it will be a bestseller. But I think the older you get, the more mature you get. Some people are mature when they're young. Some people are never mature. But the more mature you get, if you do mature, um, you're not in it for sales. You're not in it for ambition. You're in it to write one true word. And if, you know, the more you read about great writers, you know, you read about Tolstoy, you read about Hemingway, you read about the great writers in the world. They were acting so, bestseller lists didn't exist in their day. They were writing for the ages. And I think that that's where we are as a society. We've cheapened everything so much by imposing on it the capitalist mantra of how much did it sell? And I think everybody's yearning for the deeper meaning that comes from, was it good? Was it true? Was it beautiful? And did I in some way add to that? So if I write one paragraph that might, or one sentence even, that might give someone some insight that goes, yeah, that's what you write for. It's like somebody might read that sentence and go, yes, that's exactly how I see it, that excitement you get. If I do that, then that was a good day and that was a good book. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I think that answers my follow-up question, which was like, why should others do this? Uh, because so many other books are written. And I guess so the answer, I guess, is you're writing to, to get at that beautiful thought. And, and, to, uh, and it doesn't matter if a, a million people read it or if it's read by five, it still has Nobody value. has your face. Nobody has your face. Nobody has your experience in life. Nobody has your particular view of the world. And if you find your particular view of the world and you find a way to speak it, to say it truly and simply, there's a line that always meant a lot to me from, um, gosh, I forget his name. Oh, I feel terrible that I've forgotten his name. A writer who said, if you genuinely have something to say, there is someone out there who genuinely needs to hear it. I can't remember his name, but I thought that was a great, great line. 
Well, it'll be something for our listeners to Google to find it. So yeah, it's, it's right. there's some, yeah, little, you genuinely have something to say to someone out there who genuinely needs to hear it. I believe that. You're listening to KBC 790. Uh, this is Matt Mattern and host of Unite and Heal America. We're talking to Marianne Williamson, and we'll be right back after the break to talk about uh, a number of other issues. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern, KBC 790, and my guest today, Marianne Williamson. Uh, Marianne, I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit here and talk about what I see is the number one problem facing humanity today, which is the environment. And um, how do we address this set of problems that requires global action, national action, local action, individual action? <clears throat> how does a citizen engage with this, given the complexity of, of the issues that we face? I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of science out there that uh, may be challenging for kind of the average person. I know it's challenging for me to get my head around it. There's, there's a lot of it out there. I think at this point, the most profound truths are not complex at all. They're very simple. The fossil fuel companies are destroying the world. And that's not really very complex. And while I'm not a huge fan of either major political party these days, one is a lot worse on this topic than the other. And that's as simple as it gets. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I recognize that uh, Exxon did a study back in the 80s <laughs> saying that uh, the CO2 yeah. levels would get up to the 400 parts per million level. And if and they it did- what they were doing. They knew what right. they were doing. So, and even today, the big fossil fuel companies are lobbying against the climate action uh, aspects of the infrastructure bill. I don't know what these guys are thinking because don't I know they want their, their grandchildren to breathe. Um, at this point, we can analyze it all we want. Uh, their tyranny must be stopped. Their tyranny must be stopped. Even now, given the horrific uh, climate crisis that we are in as we speak. This is not something that's coming. This is something that's here. Even as we speak, the fossil fuel companies are lobbying, doing everything they can to strip the infrastructure bill of the climate mitigation aspects. And these people need to be called out and it needs to be seen for what it is. And everybody needs to show up um, in the 2022 midterms and vote uh, for the party that you feel will give you some climate change mitigation as opposed to the one who will resist it tooth and nail. And we can talk about how it's complicated, but what I just said is not complicated. They want you to think it's complicated. It's really very simple. We need to shift yeah, I, from a dirty economy to a clean economy. We need a just transition. And if we do not make that, if we do not make that transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy, we're going to continue seeing something that to me is so sad. You know, I'm seeing names here of the people working on your team, Matt. I see Cal and Sasha and Harry. I don't know if this is true of any of them, but I think it's possible that uh, at least one of them are young in childbearing years. And everywhere I go in this country, when I say, I would say to audiences when I was running for president, I would say, how many of you either are a young person or have ha heard a young person say, under normal circumstances, I would probably wanna have children, but given the world that they would probably inherit, I'm not going to. And everywhere I went, in large towns and small, 
enough people would raise their hands that I'd say, please look around the room. Please look around. Everybody would look. Everybody was kind of astonished because they thought it was only them. And I said, something is very wrong that you have this many young people, not that everybody is supposed to have kids, but that you have this many young people who under normal circumstances would at least consider it, who are afraid to bring someone into the world because of this. I don't know how much more of a code red. We know that the IPCC report said we're on code red. We all know we're on code red. We all know the economic forces that resist dealing with this. We know their names. We know it's Exxon. We know it's Shell. We know everything we need to know. At this point, we need to stop pretending we don't know and do everything possible to stop them in their tracks and the midterms in 2022. Will have will be a large part of that. I guess the question is on a on a micro basis or kind of the step by step path to uh, decarbonize our economy. What does that path look like to you? I, I realize that uh, we are taking steps along that path, and and we've made some strides here in California, but uh, we've got we've got quite a long way to go. Yes. And on a micro level, I think many of us are awakened to things we weren't awakened to before, whether it has to do with no longer eating animals, whether it has to do with as simple as driving an electric car, which is not that simple. Uh, there are, I, I, I do, you know, in this area, as in so many, uh, Matt, the problem is not the consciousness of the American people. We're, we're not stupid. And you see issue after issue, including climate, People want the government to take strong action. The government is not taking strong action because they are corporate whores, because the undue influence of money, particularly corporate money, on our governmental systems is such that they are consistently in this area, as in others as well, voting against the will of the American people rather than representing the will of the American people. The reason people are so frustrated is because we know a micro level is not enough. My having an electric car is not enough. My recycling is not enough. My, even my, uh, my going vegan is not enough. Even though we're all like moving towards these things as best we can, the, the multi-billion dollar fortunes that are made by these fossil fuel companies that, as you said yourself, know what they're doing. And even now what they're doing with the infrastructure bill and how they're, uh, they're doing everything they can to strip the climate mitigation uh, pieces out of it. At this point, uh, uh, we've got to show up in such massive numbers in 2022, or I think we're kind of done. Well, I guess the other question related to that is uh, we in the United States can take effective action, assuming we can. That's a, that's a, an if. Uh, we still have to convince other parts of the world, particularly China, India, and other areas, to clean up their environment because we are a whatever 10, 12 percent of the global emissions now, or something like that. It's we're we're part of it, but we're not the sole problem. So how do we how do we get them? <laughs> Yeah, well, but that, that's such a classic displacement technique. We do it as individuals. Well, what about other people? You know, um, <laughs> we, we would just call ourselves on that. I mean, that's so ridiculous. And, and every, I mean, at this point, at this point, particularly after Afghanistan, 
and everything else. The United States is so in no position to say, well, we do the right thing, but they don't. If we just take care of our own house and do what we can, uh, that's, a, that's a spiritual principle right there. Um, and, and I do believe, I mean, look at the, look at the Paris climate, climate Accords. We were the ones who withdrew. So um, I think that there are climate activists pretty much all over the world and the part of the garden that we're asked to tend is our own. Okay, focus on our own problems first. That's always a good well, place to start. Well, it's not even our problem. Obviously, the climate change is a global problem, but we can certainly deal with the with the part of the problem that is created by the United States uh, and do what we can to end that. And we do need to end it. This stuff has just got to stop. We're we're beyond code red. We're in active self destruction at this point. Yeah, I, I certainly have seen it coming for a while. I, I had an electric car and I've had now my second hydrogen car. And I do feel like, hey, my my contribution is a bit of a drop in the bucket and that it does. We do need government action on here to regulate things because, hey, without government action, individual action will not be enough or will not occur quickly enough to uh, resolve the problems. I mean, when we had really super dirty air in Los Angeles, we had to have a set of regulations to reduce the amount of pollutants. And even with all of that, we still have some of the dirtiest air in the country. So we still have, we still have work to be done here in LA. It's, it's not like we've somehow solved the problem <laughs> at all. And there's no doubt that uh, the fossil fuel industry it has to basically die. It's uh, it, at some point in time in the fairly near future because uh, it's it's just too dirty, and the science says that that's uh, what we need to do. So I think we can do it, and I think we can have a lot of good things come out of it economically. There are hundreds of companies that are engaged in cleaning up the environment. And all those companies are going to profit if we encourage that uh, direction. Our economy will, will shift to adjust to, to make those changes. And, and uh, we will all profit by having uh, cleaner energy. We're going to go to our break, but I will take up uh, your response uh, as soon as we get back from the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. My guest... Marianne Williamson, and we're talking about the environment and uh, a lot of other problems uh, that we're all facing. So uh, stay tuned. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Batter, your host, and my guest today, again, Marianne Williamson. And uh, Marianne, right before the break, uh, you were about to jump in and make a point about uh, some environmental issues uh, before we went to the break. Well, I wanted to, um, to echo something that you had said that I think is so important. You said there was a lot of money to be made in green energy. And what I wanted to point out was that the guys who are promoting the dirty energy and making so much money off the dirty energy know that. They could and should be leading the transition to green. But these guys just want to, they just want everyone to squeeze every last dollar out of the old before they go there. And it's unconscionable. We need a just transition from dirty energy to clean energy. 
There are many people who have jobs working in the de- uh, in dirty energy industries, but we need their same skill set. We need their, their manufacturing skills, their engineering skills, their development skills, their creative skills. Um, this transition could occur. It should not have to be uh, in contradiction to the big fossil fuel companies. They should be leading this. They should be leading this. This should not even be oppositional. They are showing such an ugly face of capitalism. And I don't blame the young people who are, who are just so cynical about all this at this point. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's just terrible. And, it, and, and, you know, there is such a thing as healthy shame. And these people should be ashamed of themselves. Well, no doubt that uh, it's, it's just bad business on top of the fact that they're destroying the planet, which from a moral standpoint, is absolutely completely wrong. And that you would think that somebody would think that that was despicable to destroy the planet that you live on. I, I, you know, it's hard to, hard to think of something much worse than that. But just if even if you were such a person that could put that aside, you might at least look at the profit of changing your company so that you would be engaged in an industry, you know, essentially they're going to destroy their companies because they refused to transition to uh, healthier, greener energy. But uh, I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk to you a bit about foreign policy, because uh, I know you've talked a lot about Afghanistan in the last few weeks. Um, I wanted to talk about totalitarian regimes in particular, uh, China, Russia, North Korea, and kind of what's the best mindset that we can have uh, as Americans in dealing with this uh, rising totalitarianism that we see across the planet. And uh, they seem to be, um, you know, dead set to take away freedoms that we hold near and dear. So well, China and Russia and North Korea, this is not a new phenomenon. This, is, this has been true for a very long time. The rising authoritarianism that is a new phenomenon and so scary because it has its adherence here in the United States are countries like Poland, Hungary, the Philippines. We actually have some very, very, very far-right neo-fascist elements with rising authoritarian elements in countries like France. And let's not kid ourselves, we have them here. That is what's so scary. We've known about China for a long time. We've known about Russia for a long time. We've known about North Korea for a long time. In that sense, not that much has changed, except obviously some things have stepped up about China. What concerns me so much is that what you need is a strong counterforce to Russia, China, and North Korean models of dictatorship and and oppression. And that has historically been a passionate embrace of liberal Western values, of freedom, what it means to have a free society, what it means to have a multicultural, multi-ethnic society, what it means to have equality of rights and opportunities, what it means to have a balance of individual liberty with concern for the common good. That's where, you know, it's offense. It's taking a strong stand for freedom. That's where the rising totalitarianism is is so scary right now where it's so scary, the new appetite that some people have for authoritarian models is here in the United States, is the appetite for Donald Trump, is the appetite for uh, Marie Le Pen in France. And of course, the embrace of people of, of the, um, uh, such as Orban and others, Hungary, Poland, et cetera. 
this goes back, Matt, to what you and I were talking about at the beginning of your program. We all have to grow up and stand up really, really fast and recognize this. The, not only is there this rising tide of, of authoritarianism, including the one of the, its worst spaces around the world, which is a new rising in anti-Semitism, but to recognize it here in our own country. And the, the way you, you route it out is by being far more attentive to the kinds of factors, particularly economic hardship, economic despair, that creates a kind of petri dish out of which these societal dysfunctions are more likely to emerge, and to take a more vigorous and passionate stand for the forces politically, socially, um, and psychologically, which, which are the real counterforce and embrace of what America is supposed to mean, what it means to be a free society. We can't just fight forces that are against freedom. We have to remember why freedom matters, why we're passing it on to our children and work with others who feel as strongly about it as we do. I've been saying, you were talking about my books. I was talking in 1998, I wrote a book, uh, published a book called um, uh, Healing the Soul of America. Back then, I said the country that needs a pro-democracy movement is the United States. Well, uh, and now, if I may just say so, I just want to add one thing to that. You want to talk about rising totalitarianism? If ever there's rising totalitarianism, it's those voter suppression laws that are being passed around the country, even voter nullification laws that are being passed around the country. Once again, it's like we were talking about before, our own garden, our own home. Well, certainly uh, there are elements in the United States that, uh, you know, supported the uh, January 6th attack on the Capitol, which was uh, a horrendously anti-democratic uh, action. And yes. uh, I think George W. Bush uh, recently called it terrorism. So uh, children I, of the same foul spirit, he said. Right. So I, I think that uh, we've got to recognize that 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 type of action, which Donald Trump was a master at fanning the flames of of that type of destruction, because he he truly did not care about America. Who, what he cared about was himself. And he uh, whatever was good for him was primary. If it happened to be good for the United States, that was just secondary. Uh, unfortunately, uh, fortunately, he's not in office, uh, and I think that um, a shift has been made. But I do think that China and Russia have to be watched very carefully, in that they are they are very committed to damaging our democracy through many different methods, uh, whether it be through. Uh, disinformation and uh, all types of uh, propaganda that does reach people through the internet and and uh, pollutes their mind with basically garbage. Um, it isn't the sole cause of the problems that we have, but it certainly is uh, a systematic attack on our on our democracy. I don't disagree with that. So I guess you know where do we go from here? Uh, how does the power of love? Uh, neutralize this this hate and um, forces of darkness that, uh, you know, are trying to kind of smother and attack the rights that we hold dear, uh, whether it's freedom of religion or freedom of uh, speech or, you know, our four basic freedoms. Well, the most important things that we need to do are to protect the freedoms that we do have. I mean, I agree with what you said about Russia and China. 
But when you look at some of the forces at work here in the United States, we I agree with George Bush. We have to be just as vigilant in routing out those forces here as we are in making sure they do not have uh, power coming at us from other countries. But let's talk for a moment about the defense budget and how we have a defense budget. It was already at about $763 billion. Even since evacuating um, from Afghanistan, we have added another $24 billion. Given what the real uh, dangers are in, in the world today that you yourself mentioned, shouldn't a lot more of that money be towards cybersecurity? We're not even preparing to fight the right war at this point. I mean, you know, yeah. if you look at the thing about Afghanistan, it wasn't even just that they did it, but they did it so badly. It wasn't even just the problem that they did that stupid invasion of Iraq. They did it so badly. And that's because it was never it, it was never thought through in terms of the goal. that was the theoretical mission. It was two point three trillion spent in Afghanistan. Two trillion of it was defense contractors. So on one hand, we talk about what are we going to do about China? What are we going to do about, about Russia? What are we going to do about North Korea? But if you actually look at the dominant mentality of our foreign affairs, uh, our, our foreign affairs functioning governmentally, it has more to do with how we're going to, what are we going to do about getting Raytheon its profits this month? What are we going to do about getting Boeing its profits this month? What are we going to do about getting North of Grumman its profits this month? So, you know, you and I, we're not going to invade China. We're not going to invade Russia. But I'll tell you this much. I don't think it was good for us. That debacle in Afghanistan, I have a, I have a deep concern that people in the Kremlin, uh, people in the Chinese Communist Party and elsewhere who are not actors that we appreciate were chuckling to see what absurdly negligent and what a spectacular failure we were in Afghanistan. Well, I certainly was uh, concerned about going in there from the beginning because I, being a student of history, you look at Alexander the Great, the British Empire, the Russian Empire, all lost in Afghanistan. So it was one of those things, you're, you're looking at history, the deck was stacked against us going in there from the get-go. And uh, it, the generals uh, foisted this idea that if we just put more and more personnel there, more and more troops, we would somehow, you know, win this war. But obviously that that didn't happen. Uh, certainly a lot more to talk about with you, uh, Marianne. I appreciate having you on the show. It was uh, great Thank getting you. a chance to talk to you. Thank and you. Thank uh, you. I'd love to have you back some other time. Um, so you're listening to KBC 790, this Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern and... Uh, we had a great guest on, Marianne Williamson, and uh, we'll hope to have all you back listening next week. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.